repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and, make, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give us ears to hear his word. Our world is obsessed with how the world's going to end. Have you seen evidence of this? It's actually everywhere in culture if you look at it. People are literally obsessed with when and how human history is going to wrap up. Every single year, there are new predictions released regarding the end of the world. And up to this point, all of them have failed to come to pass. Uh, millions of people are led astray. Lots of money is spent in the process, but again, so far they're all wrong. Let me give you several examples of predictions about the end of the world that uh, have failed to come to pass in recent days. For instance, Notre Dame, I've heard of him, claimed the world was going to end in 1999. Many believed Y2K was going to be the end of civilization as we know it. You remember Y2K if you were around? In 2001, William Hutton, predicted a worldwide earthquake that was going to cause the entire planet to implode. In 2003, it was predicted that the earth would be demolished by crashing into the planet Nibiru. 2008, a number of scientists thought that the Hadrian Atomic Collider would destroy the world by creating black holes in our universe. In 2011, Harold Camping claimed that the second coming of Jesus was going to happen on May 21st, 2011. I remember when that happened. I think it was a Sunday. and It was a, a curious Sunday to be here when Jesus didn't come again on that day. The Mayan calendar claimed the world would end on December 21st, 2012, and David Mead claimed that the Earth would be destroyed in 2017 by crashing into the so-called planet X. Those are simply a small handful of the literally scores of weird and wild predictions that have been made that the world was going to end in recent years, again, all of which have failed to come to pass. But this isn't something limited only to kind of bizarre, late-night History Channel documentaries. Some of the most popular movies that have been in our theaters have been around the end of the world. This has been their topic. Uh, let me just read you a few titles. These are all coming from the last, say, 15, 20 years. The End of the World's the Big Theme. And just think, have you heard of these movies before? There was The Day After Tomorrow, starring Dennis Quaid. War of the Worlds, starring Tom Cruise. A movie simply entitled Knowing starring Nicolas Cage. In 2012, there was a movie entitled 2012, starring John Cusack. 2015, there was These Final Hours, and in 2019, this uh, last year, there was the surprise hit, some of you may have seen it, This Wandering Earth. Hollywood knows we are fascinated by the end of the world, and they're only too happy to continue to produce movies that we are happily going to pay for. In recent years, the most popular idea about the end of the world has been tied to climate change and global warming. Now, this is coming out a lot in politics right now. Summarizing the results of a recent poll, listen to what Martin Borellis writes. He 
He says, more than half of young Americans fear the end of humanity is near because of climate change, according to a recent survey. According to a September 2019 Rasmussen survey, 29% of all American voters believe it's at least somewhat likely that the earth will become uninhabitable and humanity will be wiped out in the next 15 years. Now just think about that. That's what most of our neighbors are thinking, that this is how the world's going to end. Half of voters under 35 believe it's at least somewhat likely humanity will be wiped out in the next decade or so. That's a pretty pessimistic view of life. That's what people are thinking. Suffice it to say, our world is obsessed with the end of the world, whether it be through global warming, a nuclear war, an asteroid, an asteroid collision, uh, that big earthquake we've all been waiting for, the sun just burning out, who knows? People are eager to know when and how human history is going to come to an end. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not yet turned from your sins and put your hope in Jesus, we are delighted you're here. Literally, there's nowhere we'd rather you be at 1045 on a Sunday morning. But I'm curious, if you're not a Christian, how do you think the world's going to end? Uh, what do you think is going to wrap up human history as we know it? Certainly, you've got some guess. Now, I'd be interested to talk to you about that at the door. Now, in a world like ours, in a world so concerned with the end of the world, this is where Christianity is incredibly helpful. Christianity is incredibly helpful because we have the true, the definitive answer to this question, when the world's going to end. Human history as we know it will end when and only when the Lord Jesus returns to earth. It's just like the Holy Spirit says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's interesting, of all those theories I mentioned, you know, crashing into the planet Nibiru and whatnot, they all pass away. But here 2,000 years later, people are still looking for the return of Jesus. In the Christian worldview, this then is the event that will conclude human history. Jesus' second coming. And no alien attack, no nuclear war, no ecological disaster can ever prevent or change that. Humans will continue to exist on that planet until Jesus comes again. So to help us in thinking about this issue, to deepen our faith in the trustworthiness of God, to further convince us that God is truly, totally sovereign over human history, we're going to be directing our attention today to this event, when God's going to wrap history up, the second coming of Jesus. Now, just to explain why we're talking about the second coming of Jesus this morning, we're concluding today our annual Advent series of sermons began three, begun three weeks ago. If you've been with us, you'll remember that three weeks ago we looked at Old Testament prophecy and about how God prophesied many, many times all throughout the Old Testament that he was sending a Redeemer, a Messiah, someone who would save his people from their sins. God promised that a baby would be born to a virgin, and that baby would be the Savior of the world. That was our focus three weeks ago. Last week on Christmas Sunday, we looked at the birth of our Savior, Jesus, and we looked at the way in which the wise men visited this baby and worshipped this baby, demonstrating he's more than just a little baby. In fact, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and what we looked at last week is how he died specifically to redeem us and to make us God's people, and he rose again victorious over death. And now today, as we do on the last Sunday of every year, by the way, this is a tradition here. Uh, if you only come once a year, realize that if you come on the last Sunday of the year, you're going to hear a sermon on the second coming. But we're going to talk about this event that's yet to take place. The very same Jesus prophesied throughout the Old Testament, who was born in the manger, died on the cross, rose again. He is coming back. And we really believe that. Historically coming back to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, he's going to thoroughly deal with sin 
and set this world aright. Now turning to first, or pardon me, Second Thessalonians, if you're not there, turn to Second Thessalonians, and if I could just put this passage in context, we believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Second Thessalonians to the church, or church is, in Thessalonica around 50 AD. So what that means is that this is one of the very first books of the New Testament to be written. Now, as you can tell, the Thessalonian Christians are very young believers. They've been saved maybe a few months, maybe a few years at most. In all likelihood, uh, most of us who are believers have been Christians longer than the Thessalonians were. Furthermore, we can tell from the letter that they were experiencing active, aggressive persecution, which we know is very common in the ancient Roman world. In, like, in all likelihood, some of the members of this church had been imprisoned, beaten, possibly even killed for their trust in Jesus. Now, this congregation, like most churches in those days, was small, comparatively speaking. In all likelihood, it was maybe 30 to 50 believers. They'd be meeting in the homes of more, some of the more wealthy Christians, and they were overseen by maybe three or four elders who provided spiritual shepherding and oversight. One more detail. We learn this from both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, that these Christians, because they came from a pagan background and because they were relative, relatively new in the faith, they were easily confused, easily led astray. Consequently, Paul's teaching in these two books is relatively simple, non-technical, uh, really ideal stuff to study if you're a new Christian or somebody newer to the faith. Well, that's a little bit of the context. The first thing I'd like us to notice now from our passage is the purposes of our Lord's return. Clearly, Paul is talking about the purpose of the Lord's return here. Let's notice that here. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.6. There Paul writes, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, if you're reading carefully, Paul actually enumerates two purposes for the Lord's return here, and the first of these is retribution. Retribution, did you catch that? He will repay with affliction those who afflict you. Like I said, these Christians were suffering persecution, being harassed, being opposed, being afflicted. And one of the truths Paul uses to comfort them in their persecution, Jesus is coming. He is coming, and when he comes, he will bring the persecutors to justice. He will afflict the very ones who are persecuting you now and be comforted in that. Now, this idea will be the major focus of verses 9 and 10, so we'll leave our main discussion of that till then. But suffice it to say, God is a righteous God, a just God, and he does not allow evil to go unpunished. In fact, at the end of time, every single solitary act of evil will be thoroughly, righteously dealt with. There will be no sweeping it under the rug, no ignoring it, no just winking at it, saying boys will be boys. And this is true not only for the Thessalonians, but for you. Every single evil thing, sinful thing you've ever done will be dealt with. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. If I'm going to give an account for every careless word I speak, what about the big bad things I've done? And this principle holds true for all of us. Just think over your lives. Every evil act you've ever done, justly dealt with. Every evil thought you've ever thought, every evil word you've spoken, every way that you cut a corner at work or mistreated your parents, disre disrespected your parents, God is going to justly deal with that. Indeed, God's justice demands this. God would not be a righteous, holy God to ignore this. And this will be dealt with in one of two ways, either in sinners suffering eternally in hell, 
or by the cross of Jesus. Jesus on the cross suffering in the place of all those who trust in him. But either way, God will be a just God who deals with all sin. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, who do you want to bear the punishment for your sins? Do you want it to be you being punished in hell forever for all the evil that you've done? Or will you accept what Jesus has done on the cross, him suffering in your place? But either way, somebody's got to suffer for what you've done. Now, since this is the case, one of the applications the New Testament draws from this is that we're never to take revenge. We are never to take revenge because God is going to take care of that. Regardless of the offense committed against you, regardless of how deeply it has hurt you, regardless of how often it's happened, you are not to seek revenge. That's not your role. If, for instance, your spouse neglects you, your son or daughter abuses you, your boss takes advantage of you, your classmates cheat you out, that is wrong, that is evil, but you leave that in the hands of God. We believe that God is a righteous God, and when Jesus comes again, he will address those sins. It's just like Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, that's the first purpose for Jesus' return, retribution. We see a second purpose for Jesus' return in verse 7. And this is a purpose of relief. Relief. Look at verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, it's very true that in context, Paul is talking to people experiencing active persecution. And you might be tempted to think this only applies to those who are being actively persecuted, actively being afflicted by others for their faith. Yet we know from other passages of Scripture that when Jesus comes again, he's going to bring relief not only from persecution, but from all the curses and consequences of sin. Not only to the, only those who have been persecuted, but to all God's children. Listen, for instance, to Philippians 3.20. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus, the very instant he comes again in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be transformed. We'll immediately experience relief from all the curses and consequences of sin. Never again will there be persecution, never the, again sickness, never again despair, never again, again depression, never again illness, never again harassment or abuse, all of that gone. Indeed, our bodies will never be afflicted by any of the sin-related limitations that we experience. That's the kind of relief we can expect if we're believers when Jesus comes again. Now, since this is the relief that we'll experience when Jesus comes again, this is why the Bible often instructs Christians to long for and to look for Jesus' coming. Did you know this? This is a reoccurring theme over and over again in the New Testament. Long for, look forward to the coming of Jesus. This is, in fact, a sign of spiritual health, an indicator that you are growing in godliness. It's like Titus 2.13 says, We wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20, the Apostle John cries out, Amen, come Lord Jesus. It is a good and spiritually healthy thing to be longing for and looking for the return of Jesus. This is the longing of a soldier at war who longs to go home and be with his family. 
The longing of a husband away on a business trip who wants to get home to his bride. The longing of a man lost at sea, hoping to get back to shore. If you've got any of that when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, take that as a sign that your soul is healthy, that God's Spirit is at work in your life. But if you don't, you should be concerned. Now note just in passing, before we move on, how this passage emphasizes both the kindness and the severity of God. Uh, kindness toward believers, definitely comforting them, speaking words of comfort, but severe wrath toward those doing the persecuting. Did you pick that up? And what this reminds us of is that the God of the Bible is truly a God of severity and mercy. Wrath and grace, love and anger, and we can't neglect one for the sake of the other. You know, we really love hearing about the love part. We love singing Amazing Grace and so forth. Uh, we, we just kind of don't really like thinking about the wrath part. Two problems with that. First, that's not biblical. And second, that's not reality. The God who is God is a God of love and wrath, mercy and judgment. And we need to preach and teach both for a biblical balanced picture of the character of God. Well, that's something on the purposes of the Lord's return. Let's talk next about the manner of our Lord's return. Not only what he's going to do, but how he's going to return. Now look at verse 7. At the end of verse 7, it says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now if you look there at the end of verse 7, you'll see from where Jesus is coming. You see that? It says, when he's revealed from heaven. Now, just to explain, Jesus dies, rises again. For 40 days, he hangs out with his disciples, teaching them. But then he ascends back to heaven. That's called the ascension. From that point, the ascension, until he comes again, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. He's there in heaven right now. Uh, he's there preparing a place for us. It's When Christians die, they go to be with him there. But that's where Jesus is, and it's from heaven that he will descend back to earth to judge. It's just like we read in Acts 1.11. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. But not only does this passage tell us that Jesus is going to come down out of heaven, it also tells us that he's coming with his mighty angels. Verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now ponder just for a moment what that means. Uh, these angels belong to Jesus. You know, these angels are not free agents just kind of roaming around the universe. Uh, they're not on loan from God the Father. They're definitely not Jesus' twin brothers or some nonsense like that. These are servants of Jesus. He is their commander, and he and these angels are his soldiers coming with him to do his will. It's very interesting that so many of the depictions of Jesus' return include the angels coming with Jesus. It's almost like this is something God wants us to know. For instance, in Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says this about himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. We see the same thing in Revelation 19, the passage we read earlier. And you've got to imagine this, the sky parts. Jesus is descending, but not only Jesus, but behind him, millions of angels. And these angels, they're not the sort of chubby cherubs that you see in commercials. They're those warrior angels from the Old Testament, kind of with glowing, flaming skin, with swords and shields, that sort of thing. This is Jesus' second coming. And look at how it says he's going to be in flaming fire. Again, verse 7, he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in 
flaming fire. This is an awesome picture. I mean, this will amaze us when we see it. Now, this idea of God coming with flaming fire, it's got rich Old Testament roots. When the Old Testament talked about God coming to judge the world, it often talked about him coming in fire. For instance, in Isaiah 66, 15, Isaiah prophesied this, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and with his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. There's a high likelihood Paul actually had that passage in mind from Isaiah 66 when he was describing, this, uh, describing the return of Jesus. If that's the case, what we have is simply one more Old Testament passage talking about God Almighty fulfilled in Jesus, telling us that Jesus is God Almighty himself. I won't read Revelation 19 again. We read it just a moment ago. But again, you see there Jesus coming in wrath, coming in fire, coming with angels behind him. When Jesus comes again, hear me, he is not coming as a helpless little baby. He is not coming as the humble carpenter of Galilee. He is coming as the warlord of the armies of heaven, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's how we need to look to heaven as we think about Jesus' second coming. Now you contrast this with how people imagine Jesus today. If people believe in Jesus today at all, typically they think of a very weak, effeminate kind of guy. Very weak, effeminate Jesus. You see this in art. Uh, there's even some Netflix shows going around portraying Jesus this way. A, a Jesus who's you know, he's really taking good care of his hair, uh, making sure his nails are in good shape. You know, the kind of guy that would never beat anybody in a fight. He wouldn't even be interested in beating anybody in a fight. I think largely because of that, Christianity is often perceived as a very weak, effeminate religion for old church ladies and effeminate men. But that understanding is the furthest, furthest thing from biblical truth and reality. When Jesus comes again, he will shock everybody. It will be truly shock and awe. His wrath toward those who don't know him will be so fierce that people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them and crush them so they don't have to endure the wrath of Jesus. Listen to Revelation 6.15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb in Revelation is Jesus. So just as God the Father is a God both of severity and mercy, wrath and love, so also Jesus, God the Son. He is most certainly a God of wrath and mercy, severity and justice. And again, we need to communicate a balanced portrait of Jesus to give people an accurate view of Christianity. Well, let's consider lastly the results of the Lord's return. The results. We've talked about the purposes the manner. Let's talk about lastly the results. What will happen? Now look at verse 8. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Now the first sort of group of results mentioned here are the results on those who don't know Jesus, those who are condemned. Again, verse 8, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, just to make a couple of comments there, realize those phrases are synonymous. 
Those who do not know God are those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They have not yet turned from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, committed themselves to him. Now, sometimes people get hung up on that phrase, do not obey the gospel. Uh, they think that it somehow contradicts the idea that salvation is a gift of free grace, uh, given without doing or earning anything. Well, salvation truly is a free gift. Revelation 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to your Creator, however you want to word it, you never earn it, you never do anything to deserve it. It's a free gift to be received by faith alone. Well, why then is this described as not obeying the gospel? We should imagine it this way. The gospel is the invitation to accept a free gift, but it's an offer from the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's an offer from the master of the universe. And to reject that gift, to turn that away and say, I don't want that, that is rebellion, that is treason. And it makes us worthy of his wrath. The passage then goes on to describe what will happen to these who reject the gospel. Look at verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now this is a very accurate description of what will happen to all who do not have faith in Jesus when Jesus comes again. When he comes in flaming fire, surrounded by his angels, all non-Christians will be eternally condemned. All cast into the lake of fire. Like Revelation 20 says, they will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The more you think about that, the more shocking that becomes. I remember about 13 years ago, I had to prepare a sermon on hell. So I spent all week long, like I typically do, studying this, for this sermon, reading stuff about hell, reading passages in Scripture about hell. And the more you read about it, the more it freaks you out. It's eternal, like there's no getting out. It's conscious. You're not in a coma, and it's torment. It is far more horrible than anything you can experience in this life. And you put that together, and it's, it's shocking. And I remember the Saturday night before I was going to preach that sermon on hell, uh, my family and I, we went to uh, that steakhouse over by the mall out back. And I remember sitting there being almost unable to think about anything else, almost unable to eat. I'm thinking... All these people, you know, not all of them, but most of these people are probably on their way to hell. They are going to eternal conscious torment unless they turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. So why in the world aren't we doing something to reach them? This is a shocking, disturbing picture, but that's the point. Eternal conscious torment is the fate of all who do not put their faith in Jesus. And if that's the case this morning for you, if you've not turned from your rebellion, stopped running from God, and embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is your fate. This is where you're going. A fearful expectation of judgment, a fire of fury that will consume the adversaries, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, it's scary, but that's the point. Sometimes it's good to be scared. What's the result? Results on those who don't know Jesus. Look at the opposite result. Verse 10. Those who do know him. Verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Clearly, this is the exact opposite kind of reception. While unbelievers are condemned, believers are amazed. While non-Christians are destroyed, believers are glorified. 
And this is the joyful expectation that all of you should anticipate if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When Jesus comes again, if your hope is in Jesus, you won't meet him as a terrifying judge, but as a loving friend. You won't encounter him as a terrifying warrior, but as a good shepherd. He won't come slashing at you with a sword of war, but with the open arms of a friend. And as this passage says, we will marvel at, we will stand amazed at Jesus. Maybe ask yourself, when was the last time you stood amazed? When when were you just so in awe that you almost lost sight of yourself, forgot about yourself? You know, maybe you saw the Grand Canyon. For me, when I saw Devil's Tower out west, truly amazing. Same thing when my firstborn son was born. Awe-inspiring. You got an experience like that in your life? Take that and multiply it by a million, and that's how you'll feel when you see Jesus coming down out of heaven. Your mouth will drop open. You'll probably drop to your knees. Your eyes will become as big as saucers, and you will marvel that the King of Kings is here. This is so radically different than what will happen to non-Christians. This is a reception of comfort, of relief. Listen to how Jesus describes this in John 14. John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. For those of us who trust in Jesus, his return will be precious. It will be full of comfort, full of glory. One final observation on this passage. Notice that little phrase there in verse 10. Because our testimony to you was believed. Now what in the world is that talking about? Well, this is explaining why when Jesus comes again, they will not be destroyed, but will rejoice. Why they won't be condemned, but will stand amazed. Because our testimony to you was believed. This appears to be the single factor turning the tables moving them from being condemned to being reconciled to God. The the one difference between being cast into the lake of fire and entering the Father's presence. Because our testimony to you was believed. What is that talking about? This is talking about belief in the gospel. The gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that all the apostles preached, and the gospel that we preach here to you. This is the one distinguishing factor that makes all the difference when Jesus comes again. To quickly remind you of this gospel that 2 Thessalonians is talking about, the gospel is first a message. It's not a lifestyle, not keeping the Ten Commandments, not loving your neighbor, not doing anything. It's a message. It's news about what God has done through his Son to save sinners. The gospel tells us that we've all been made in the image of God. We're manifestly different from animals. We're made to know him, made to have a relationship with him, made to reflect his character into this world. And yet we've all broken God's laws. Knowingly, intentionally broken God's laws. Frankly, by nature, we hate God. We wish he'd stay out of our lives, stop telling us what to do. We can live quite happily without you, God. Please stay out. That's who we are by nature. This is why we deserve wrath, deserve condemnation. Basically, we said, God, we don't want to be with you forever. And God could have said, okay, if you don't want me, be lost. And yet, that's exactly when God, in his great love, he acted to reconcile us to himself. He took the initiative. 
God became incarnate. He took on human flesh in the person of Jesus. He lived a perfect, sinless life, but then he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God deserved by sinners upon himself. You see, this is what's going on at the cross. It's not a martyrdom. It's not just an example of how much we should love God. It's Jesus taking our judgment day for all those who would trust in him. He dies, he's buried, but then God the Father raises him back from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you this morning is true. He ascends to heaven, and it's from there that he's going to return to judge. And now in response, he's inviting you. He's calling you, turn from your sins, embrace Jesus, and be saved. And right now, I would invite you, if you've never put your hope in Jesus, like I've been talking about, do it right now. Right now. Maybe you've attended church all your life. Maybe like 75% of Americans, you think you are a Christian. That's because maybe grandpappy was a Christian or something like that. But maybe for the first time you've come to understand that if Jesus were to come today, I would not be ready. I would not be welcomed into his presence. I would be condemned and destroyed. If that's you, I beg of you, right where you are, cry out to God for mercy. Stop running from God. Stop thinking I'm going to do things my way. Instead, turn to Jesus. Embrace him with the empty hand of faith. Rely on his death and resurrection. Be reconciled to God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, uh, would like to even challenge something that I've said this morning, please come talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But please trust the Lord Jesus today, and today be ready for his return. Now, our time's about gone, but in conclusion, I want to talk quickly to those of you who are Christians, who have turned from your sins and put your hope in Jesus. If that's you, are you living prepared for Jesus' return? Were it today? You, you know what I'm getting at? Uh, certainly your hope in heaven is secure, and your, your sins are forgiven, and you're reconciled to God. But are you living in such a way that you wouldn't be embarrassed? You wouldn't be humiliated if Jesus were to come this afternoon? For instance, if you knew that Jesus were coming this afternoon, are there, say, relationships you'd want to work out? Uh, people's forgiveness that you'd like to seek? Situations you would like to remedy? Maybe things at work you really ought to fix? Are there things like that coming to mind right now that you would do if you knew Jesus were coming this afternoon? If there are, what's stopping you from addressing them this week? 1 John 2.28 says this, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I don't know about you, but any, any true Christian does not want to shrink back in shame when Jesus comes again. And it's actually a good sort of reminder to, to remind yourself every 20 minutes or so, I don't want to be doing this thing and get caught doing it if Jesus comes again. You know, if Jesus comes again, I do not want to be looking at this thing on the internet or whatever, watching this TV show, talking this way to my spouse, dishonoring my parents this way. So don't do it. I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you prepared for the second coming of Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord God, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the way that it is so true and trustworthy. 
And thank you for the way that you've told us how human history is going to wrap up. Please, Lord, give us greater faith that Jesus is coming again, especially uh, with all the lies going around, all the, the, the voices we hear in culture. Please give us strong faith that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead and help us to live daily in light of that. Again, for those who don't yet know Jesus, please, by your spirit, work in their hearts, awaken them, and give them faith in the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.